the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us this afternoon. James Blinn, he's producing today's program. Clark Hilton Engineering. Dan Rice, he's given up his office for the cause. Thanks, Dan. Today on the program, we're going to talk with Scott Sneer. He happens to be the president of Pest Lock, Inc., but he's the board chair of Live Love Northwest. The Miracle Miles campaign is ongoing. We'll tell you all about it and how you can help some of the folks who are struggling in our community with this campaign, providing resources to help. Scott will join us in our next segment. We'll also hear from Katie Reed, author of Made Like Martha, Good News for the Woman Who Gets Things Done. And we'll hear from, in the second hour of today's program, Jack Deere, author of Even in Our Beauty, A Story of Beauty in a Broken Life. Uh, All of that coming up on today's program. First, in the uh, headlines, we learned today that Oregon is reporting 191 new confirmed and presumptive COVID-19 cases with the state's death toll is unchanged from yesterday, remains at 192, according to the Oregon Health Authority. They reported the new confirmed and presumptive cases uh, at about 12.01 a.m. today, bringing the state's total to 74. 7,274. The new information uh, is available about Oregon's 191st death, uh, which was originally reported on the 22nd. He's a 68-year-old man in Lincoln County who died on the 16th in his residence. He had underlying medical conditions. Um, uh, An outbreak of 37 COVID-19 cases has been reported at Lamb Weston in Umatilla County. The case counts includes all persons linked to the outbreak, which may include household members and other close contacts. The investigation started on the 16th of this month. The initial case count, however, was below the threshold for public disclosure. Well, the Health Authority is now publicly reporting COVID-19 outbreaks for more than 20 cases in workplaces with more than 30 employees in its daily news release Monday through Friday. Again, Oregon reporting 191 new confirmed and presumptive COVID-19 cases, zero deaths. In other national news, President Trump said Monday that he will soon issue an executive order meant to protect public statues and monuments from being damaged or destroyed by far-left and anarchist protesters. We're going to do an executive order and make the cities guard their monuments, the president told Eternal World Television Networks. Uh, This is a disgrace. Well, the host who's also a Fox News contributor, played a clip of the interview on Monday's edition of the Ingram Angle. It's a disgrace, the president repeated. Remember, some of this is great artwork. This is a magnificent artwork, as good as there is anywhere in the world, as good as you can see in France, as good as you see anywhere, end quote. In other news, Seattle will move to end the police-free zone known as CHOP, or Capitol Hill Organized Protest, after two recent shootings. Finally, they've decided... Uh, to move, one of which, by the way, was deadly, according to the mayor, Jenny Durkin. and an announcement made on Monday, she signaled that a stunning chapter in the city's history could be drawing to a close. One can only hope. The mayor said the violence was distracting from changes sought by thousands of peaceful protesters seeking to address racial inequity and police brutality. She apparently is just coming 
with an epiphany. Activists set up CHOP in the city's Capitol Hill neighborhood about two weeks ago, barricading off an area after police evacuated a ransacked precinct building that is in that area. The dismantling of the CHOP followed the death of a 19-year-old man on a Saturday, on Saturday rather, in a shooting in which another person was also injured. City leaders have faced mounting criticism, including from the president, over the protest zone amid reports of violence inside the area and how police can respond to such incidents. Uh, Police uh, had not been able to uh, go inside the zone. In other related developments, Ben Shapiro slammed Seattle's CHOP uh, denizens after the shooting, saying protests only about castigating the system have very little to do with the issue of the day. And Jimmy Kimmel is in the hot seat. He's slammed by the president, social media, over the N-word controversy. Several celebrities are finding themselves under fire for inappropriately, uh, uh, inappropriate past behavior as racial tension remains high following the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Uh, Fox News recently obtained audio from a 2013 podcast in which Kimmel admitted to having used the N-word in 1996 when imitating Snoop Dogg for a Christmas song. In the same interview, the comic... Um, imitated black comedian George Wallace by altering his speech pattern. One of Kimmel's top critics was the president who tweeted, to be clear, I'm 100% against pushing comedians for jokes, uh, even bad jokes from unfunny hack comedians like Jimmy Kimmel. But according to the left's own woke rules that uh, Jimmy Kimmel wants to force others to live by, it's hard to see how ABC Network allows him to keep his show. So Jimmy Kimmel says the N-word acts in blackface and makes light of sexual exploitation of women, wrote another Twitter user. This is your king, referring to the king of comedy. Well, the president signed an order expanding immigration restrictions to include uh, H-1B, other guest worker programs. Rice University students uh, groups are demanding that a black house better ID, uh, rather demanding a black house as opposed to the White House, better ID photos and statue removal. Not quite clear how all of those relate to one another, but nonetheless, there you have it. Assume, uh, don't assume the cancel culture won't come to you, Karl Markowitz points out, to fight this moral panic. Ordinary people will have to be brave, and we all need to show solidarity. People will have to stand up for their friends when they're in danger of being swarmed. Companies will have to stand up for their employees, and the rest of us will have to speak out for all of them. Senator Tom Cotton has uh, issued his own similar warning on Twitter, saying the mob doesn't stop at statues. Rioters have torched police precincts and low-income housing. Churches and synagogues have uh, not been spared. Next, perhaps, the mob will target the homes of police officers. Soon enough, the mob may come for you, your home, and your family. Will you stand up? Well, the book is exposing the harmfulness of sex change operations, and Amazon sets the uh, content limit yet again. Abigail Shire points out that Amazon informed it that Regnery wouldn't be uh, permitted to run a sponsored ad for uh, her book, Irreversible Damage, the Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. Amazon's stated reason for barring the ad, a simple picture of my book's cover, was this. It contains elements that may not be appropriate for all audiences, which may include ad copy book content that infers or claims to diagnose, treat, or question sexual orientation. Mm. You can read more about that in the Wall Street Journal. The book was timed well. The California Assembly has passed a bill that would bypass parental rights and leave uh, uh, young women, or men for that matter, uh, on their own to be sterilized. Remember, the National Health Services in the U.K. will no longer prove, uh, provide rather these services for minors. Just a quick note. And in protest, of course, over her unwillingness to concede to her critics on the nature of the human 
as male and female, four authors signed to J.K. Rowling's literary agency quit in protest. Among the books that may be harder to come by are volumes of, um, uh, well, I can't even pronounce some of the author's name. The publisher seems to be holding their ground from CNN. The Blair Partnership, which was established in 2011 with Rowling as its main client, said in a statement that the agency supported freedom of speech for all its clients and would not comment on individual views. We support the rights of all of our clients to express their thoughts and beliefs, and we believe in freedom of speech, said the statement emailed to CNN. It's heartening to hear that. Um, take the polling this year with a grain of salt, we're being told. The social desirability bias is even worse than it was four years ago. This bias refers to the inclination to respond to a pollster with an answer deemed socially acceptable. The latest averages, however, indicate quite a spread, 9.5% point lead for Biden. And when schools do resume, watch for woke politics in the classroom, mom and dad. With racism as a case in point, except, uh, expect this, as uh, quoted from Education Week. As Dr. Ibram X. Kendi would say, there is no not racist. There is only racist and anti-racist. Your silence favors the status quo and the violently oppressive harm it does to black and brown folks everywhere. By the way, as a black woman, I reject that notion. Uh, anyway, we're going to take a break here in just a moment. And when we return, we'll hear from Scott Sneer. He's the president of Pest Lock, Inc. He's also the board chair of Live Love Northwest. We'll talk about the campaign Miracle Miles. Uh, that's coming up in just a few moments. And we'll hear from Katie Reed, uh, Made Like Martha, good news for women who get things done. All of that coming up right here on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. There's something exciting going on in our community, and we want to make sure you know the role that you might play in helping to meet the needs of some of the people who are struggling here. Scott Sneer is the president of Pestlock, an advertiser uh, here with the Salem Stations. He's also the board chair of Live Love Northwest, and they are inviting us to join them in a campaign to meet the needs of needy in our community. Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. It is a real pleasure and honor to have you with us. Thank you, Georgine. I appreciate the opportunity. Now, I want to make sure our, our listeners understand um, your organization, Live Love Northwest. I love that name, but explain to our listeners who may not be familiar what this ministry does. Yeah, Live Love Northwest has a focus on foster families and victims of sex trafficking, homeless, and families in need at Christmas. So we have multiple different venues, four, four particular buckets that we really focus on. And, um, you know, we, we do everything from supporting them with, with goods that they need, clothing, um, uh, obviously the homeless, anything that they need for food or, uh, anything, any of the, anything of that nature. So we're, we definitely, uh, just love our community and that's our focus. And, uh, yeah, so it's pretty exciting times to be able to, uh, get involved with the community currently right now. Um, our biggest thing that we're doing is our Miracle Miles program. And uh, that has just been spectacular. We've seen incredible community involvement, corporations that have gotten involved, in, and I am so, so pleased to see what our community is doing in trying times. Um, it's it's, it's mind-blowing. Well, it's absolutely extraordinary, and I know our listeners have been hearing a little bit about these uh, this Miracle mm-hmm. Miles, but may not uh, know all that they can do to come alongside and help. Now, we're talking about a truck full of goods 
that started in New York and is making its way here to the, the, the Pacific Northwest, so the Portland metro area. Tell us a bit about what they're bringing with them and how we can help. Well, the exciting part is that last week we got our first truck, and we haven't even Excellent. released that. So you are, you are the first one, my friend, to be able to release that the first truck arrived and that it was fully funded by our community to get it here. The way Miracle Miles works is that for every $2 that anybody donates, it moves a truck a mile, and it brings it from the East Coast to here. We've been uh, been had the pleasure of working with uh, United Breast Cancer Foundation, another amazing organization, and they've helped us um, compile the goods and load these trucks up. They're two 53-foot trailers full uh, fully armed to bless people with miracles at the other end of the line. First one's in and being inventoried and ready to send out. Second one is on its way, so we could still use any help that we can get. So it's the Miracle Miles program that we're running. And uh, if you go to LiveLoveNorthwest.org, you can you can click on it and find out how to donate right there. It's pretty pretty straightforward. And I just wanted to give a shout out and thanks to everybody. Uh, obviously to you guys, um, for your support. I know the fish and KPDQ have been a massive partner in this and, uh, just so appreciate everything you guys are doing. This is going to be an amazing story for a lot of lives. Oh, absolutely. And we are just honored to be a small part of what you all are doing as well. Uh, talk about the population that's going to receive the goods that have just arrived and those that are still on their way. You're going to see a lot of it go out to foster families and foster uh, foster children primarily. Um, victims of sex trafficking, obviously, that's something that's fairly confidential. So we we have resource centers that are are super private, and um, a lot of it will be will be uh, delivered to them. Homeless will obviously receive it as well. And then also we have the Live Love Christmas event, which just last year we served I think just just shy of seven thousand families um, with the partnership with Mana House were able to get all of the gifts that they wanted for their kids. And we're talking about families of four or five kids, uh, or I'm saying like bikes and uh, I mean, anything you could think of, all brand new goods where they came into shopping centers. It's really spectacular. I mean, it's, it's, uh, we work in partnership with DHS for that. We work in partnership with school districts in the Portland, Vancouver Metro and and we get a whole list of people that are vetted that really are in need. They're able to pre-shop by giving us their names and their uh, their kids' names, their ages. And then we have all these stations set up um, where they're they're able to come in with a shopper that helps them. Everything's registered. They pick up the, the gifts that they want. They drop them off at the wrapping station. The gifts are wrapped for them while they have a cup of coffee or a snack. And then their number's called, and they come and pick up their fully wrapped gifts get to take them home for kids that need a Christmas. And so I absolutely love it. And uh, it, that one touches my heart. I've been involved with that for years, not as the, the board chair, just as a volunteer, because it is it is overwhelming um, to just see the stories. And I, I can't say enough about our key partners, really, Mana House. We, we couldn't do it without them. I mean, they have the, the locations and the volunteers. It's a obviously a very large church and and the people there are so welcoming and uh helpful we couldn't do it without them but it's it's going to be amazing i mean this year is going to be probably this will probably be the best year of live love uh ever and specifically love live love christmas um there's going to be a lot of lives changed 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I love one of your slogans, and that is, love doesn't look away. And it answers the question, who is my neighbor? And there are opportunities for us to minister to those in our community who are in such great need. And um, the Miracle Miles is a, a great way to do that. And again, you can go to the mm-hmm. website and donate to, to cover the cost of bringing those goods a little mile closer, maybe several miles closer, and you can yep. check that out. I also think it's really important to mention that the reason you and I are talking about it, the reason many people in our community are aware of uh, this campaign is because Pestlock has donated a significant portion of your advertising dollars to make this message known. And I want to spend just a moment or two talking about Pestlock and how you all are serving in our community, your advertisers here with the Salem stations. Uh, we're grateful that you're part of our family. So we want to give a shout out to you as well. Tell our listeners briefly about Pestlock and how you can help serve them. Yeah, I appreciate that. So, I mean, you know, what I always tell people, we do pest control for our living, but what we live to do is serve our local community, and that's our passion. As a father of four daughters and active in the community, our number one goal um, is to just have influence and live a life of significance in any way we can. And um, I generally just say it's pretty simple uh, overall to figure out what pest control is. We do, we do any <laughs> kind of pest control you need, uh, from your little ants to your rats to your raccoons or whatever it might be. We also do crawl space restorations, and, and it, it's pretty self-explanatory if you go to our website. But we just want our community to know that, that the number one goal for us is to be actively involved, and we just know the rest follows. Um, you know, this is my 21st year in the pest control industry and personally serviced over 35,000 structures in the Pacific Northwest, and I've managed uh, over 5 million services um, on a larger scale. So there's not much we don't know about pest control, um, but there's some people out there that I don't know yet that I want to get to, and I want to I want to bring a miracle to their life. And that, that is our heart and soul um, of what drives us. Uh, pest control is a vehicle, but mm-hmm. um, what, really, what really gets the motor running for us is to go out and serve our community. Well, I'll have to say that you are accomplishing your goal to live a life of significance in in what you set your hand to. That's your heart, and that's uh, definitely um, made evident. You can go to PestLock.com for more information. They have both a uh, Oregon and Washington telephone number. You can check that out at the website as well, so I would encourage you to do that. But for right now, I really want to emphasize that uh, you can be a part of this um, uh, this campaign to bring goods and services in our community to those who so desperately need them, and Miracle Miles is a way to do that. Now, once again, the best way for our listeners um, to connect with this campaign and to give is to go to what website? That would be LiveLoveNorthwest.org, yep. That's the one you want to be in, and that's LiveLoveNW.org. Excellent. Well, again, I am so honored to have you on the program, and I I, um, thank you for the work that you're doing here, the ministry that you are extending, and the significant example that you're setting for the rest of us who want to do the same with the resources and time that God has given us. Scott Sneer, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Georgine. Appreciate you. Thank you. Scott Sneer is president of Pestlock, Inc. He's also the board chair of Live Love Northwest, and we're talking about Miracle Miles campaign. I think there's also a link at kpdq.com. Let me encourage you before the day is out to go to the website, learn more about the campaign, and give what you can to bring those goods and services to those in our community who are struggling. And in particular, with our current circumstance, uh, now's a great time to help those who find it even more difficult Uh, to move forward. Miracle Miles, the campaign, again, kpdq.com, or you can go to livelovenw.com. 
that website also has all those details. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll hear from Katie Reed. She's the author of Made Like Martha, Good News for the Woman Who Gets Things Done. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In just a moment, we'll talk with Katie Reed. She's the author of Made Like Martha, Good News for the Woman uh, Who Gets Things Done. Karen Emmon, who is with Proverb 31 Ministries, says this of the book. Are you a doer, one who loves to check things off her daily re- uh, to accomplish list? Are, you, uh, are your desires to be productive and your confident, capable ways often subtly or even uh, overtly slammed by others? Maybe you, uh, you feel less spiritual than your laid-back, easygoing friends. She makes reference to Made Like Martha. It's going to infuse your life with a fresh perspective as you learn to embrace your God-given personality and also discover how and when to rest and retreat. So we're looking forward to talking with uh, the author of that book, Katie Reed, in just a few moments as we're getting her on the phone right now. It would be difficult to find an American Christian woman who's not struggled to be more like Mary, the Christ follower who sat at Jesus' feet while her overworked sister Martha labored in the kitchen. Well, this often quoted Bible story from Luke 10 seems to suggest that wanting to serve, achieve and accomplish things as Martha did was wrong. But is that the case? As a modern day Martha herself, my next guest is a blogger and author. Katie Reed asks in her new book, Made Like Martha, Good News for the Woman Who Gets Things Done. What if there's nothing wrong with being a Martha after all? What if God simply wants us to live out who he created us to be from a place of settledness rather than of striving. Well, she draws on biblical examples and contemporary stories to remind women that they are beloved daughters of God, not because of what they do or don't do, but because of what Jesus has done for them, for us. In Made Like Martha, she challenges readers to look more deeply at the story so that they can receive true change in their heart, even as they serve and work as the doers God has created them to be. Now, for those of you who are doers, take a big collective sigh of relief. Well, Katie Reed is a firstborn overachiever and a modern day Martha. She is an avid blogger at Katie Reed. And by the way, that's reid.com, katiereed.com. She provides posts, articles, letters, and other resources to try hard women. Um, uh, on an ongoing basis, she encourages others to unwind in God's presence through her writing, as well as through her speaking, as they find grace in the unraveling life. She has published articles with a focus on the family, I believe, Crosswalk, uh, Mops, Encourage, that's spelled I Encourage, God Size Dreams, and many other websites. She's also a contributing writer for iBelieve.com and Lightworkers.com, and has been syndicated on ForEveryMom.com. She is a devoted wife of a youth pastor and a homeschooling mother of five who resides in the middle of Michigan. She joins us today to talk about her much-needed book, Made Like Martha, Good News for the Woman Who Gets Things Done. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, it's it's not possible to be the mother of uh, so many, a wife and a mother, and to uh, be married to a youth pastor without being someone who gets things done. <laughs> so I appreciate uh, that you have written to those of us who feel that we're more like Martha, but it felt like maybe we're, we're missing the mark because uh, that's who we tend to be. That's right. Yeah. You know, Martha's fantastic. And those of us that are made like her, are as well, but for so long, man, we felt guilty. At least I have when I read that Luke 10 passage when Jesus, you 
know, kind of has to have a little talking to with Martha. Well, I really appreciate that you encourage us to revisit that portion of Scripture, which we'll do in just a few moments. But why do you think the story of Mary and Martha in the 10th chapter of Luke causes so many of us to feel guilty if we relate more to Martha than perhaps Mary? Well, you know, here's Martha. Jesus is in her home. I'm sure there were other people there. She couldn't get everything ready. She's frustrated with Mary. She needs some help. And I so badly wanted Jesus to say, hey, Mary, go help Martha. She's she's stressed out. We all know that's not what he says, right? He tells her she's worried and distracted about many things. And so I think for centuries, those of us that are made like her have felt guilty because you know, not only does Jesus say, hey, you know, you're so worried and distracted, but then he also says, Mary has chosen the good thing, you know, the better part in the situation. And so it kind of is a double whammy, right? Mm-hmm. But I think that there's been messages from the pulpit and there's been books that have kind of elevated Mary to star status. And a lot of us that are wired like Martha have felt like we're, you know, something must be wrong with us if we relate to her. And so I really wanted to take a close look at what's really going on here and where have we kind of added things to the story that really aren't there. Yeah. You um, point out that we usually assume that Jesus is criticizing Martha for working too hard, but instead it's uh, more of an invitation to walk in freedom instead of fretting. Absolutely. And, you know, I even hypothesized that, you know, what if he wasn't even, you know, alluding to that she needed to sit down physically in this moment? I mean, sure, we all need rest, you know, but... Unless she was going to, you know, cook, no one was going to eat. Unless Jesus was fasting <laughs> or unless he's going to multiply the loaves and fishes. Again, you know, it just wasn't going to happen on its own. So I think he was really inviting her to take a seat spiritually within, even while her hands are busy. And I think the way we do that is to really know who God is and who we are in light of him. And for a lot of my life, and I kind of hypothesize that maybe Martha was in this place too, of striving and trying to earn God's love instead of serving from a place where we already understand we have that love, not because of what we do, but because we're His. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, what drew you to write a book about the story of Mary and Martha? I think we can almost guess, (laughs) because many of us wish we had written that book, but what inspired you? Well, like I said, I I identify so strongly with Martha, you know, responsible, getting things done. I love my to-do list and even more love to check things off it. And so I think, like I said, this passage just frustrated me, you know, because it, it didn't go how I wanted it to. But I believe the Bible's true and that there's something for us to learn here. But one thing I started discovering is that, yes, Jesus pointed out something that Martha needed to work on in this isolated incident, but he wasn't criticizing her whole person, you know, the totality of who she was. He was pointing out one thing for her to work on. And I think those of us that are wired like Martha, we work so hard and we do so much that at least for me, when someone points out something they need to work on, it can be debilitating because it's like, I work so hard all the time, and now here's something else I have to work on. And so I think we've gotten kind of like, oh, man, well, I just shouldn't be this way. But that's not what God was saying. He was inviting her, you know, 
Go ahead and serve Martha. I'm I'm adding here. You'll paraphrase it. Go ahead and serve Martha. But you can do it from a place of peace and not fret because it's okay if this doesn't all happen perfectly, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, so I just think that there was, and I think his correction was out of love because later on in John, we see it says Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And for some reason, I had overlooked that. You know, I knew he loved Mary loud and clear, but I thought he was, you know, used to think he was annoyed with Martha, but he loved her. And, you know, God disciplines those he loves, just like, you know, with my child. Like, if they're doing something that's not the best for them, I'm going to point that out because I love them. And I think there was a tenderness in this exchange. I used to read it like, Martha, Martha, you know, get your act together. But I think it was more of like, Martha. Martha, a comforting, a, a deep breath kind of moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just wonder the expression on her face, maybe the perspiration uh, that that she that she had, just gave him an, uh, that sense that you, know, you can just relax in what you're doing. You know, it's a very right. different feeling than man. What's wrong with you? Come on, stop it. Um, you write in your book, uh, Made Like Martha, that many of us assume that God is mad at us, uh, that he's disappointed in us. How have you found healing in your life from that assumption that you're just wired the wrong way and you ought to be like somebody else? Yeah. Well, for so long, you know, I was wearing myself out, trying to keep God and everybody else happy because I was afraid if I stopped doing or if I stopped being practically perfect in every way, that, you know, either people would leave or they wouldn't, you know, love me anymore. And it was this real skewed view. You know, I was trying to be perfect instead of acknowledging, wow, I mean, I knew I wasn't perfect, but I kept trying to get there, you know. And the good news is that, man, Jesus came to be that perfection for us. And if we believe in him by faith, he died on the cross, rose for sins, he lives within us. Not only does he sit on the throne of heaven at the right hand of God, but he's given us his Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And for so long, I lived like he was company to impress, not family to enjoy. Mm. And when I started realizing, like, hey, he lives here. You know, he's not someone that's coming and I've got to have my act all together. He lives here. And the people that live here, my home, you know, there's a comfort, you know, if you're in a healthy upbringing of being home, you know, of just putting those PJ pants on, you know, and just having that kind of deep breath moment. And um, I want to have a relationship with God like that. Sure, he is powerful, but he's also personal. But we don't have to do this act for him. In Christ, we can have peace because he has done the greatest to do of all time. I love the comparison to someone who's visiting and someone who lives there, because it's true when visitors come, we make sure all the dust bunnies are at least not visible. When when we live together, there's a relaxed feeling about how things are. Uh, and that's that's a much better description of our relationship with Christ and him dwelling within us. Yeah. Great illustration. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking this afternoon uh, with the author of Made Like Martha, Good News for the Woman Who Gets Things Done. Katie Reed is my guest and we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Continuing my conversation with Katie Reed, author of Made Like Martha, Good News for the Woman Who Gets Things Done. Now, you make a comparison between 
uh, Satan's twisting of God's words to Eve in Genesis and our interpretation of Jesus' words to Martha. Tell us a bit uh, about that misinterpretation and how that can really wreak havoc in the heart of a woman who gets things done. Yes. You know, I think a lot of women don't realize that, man, maybe God designed me to be a doer and that this is a good thing indeed. In the Garden of Eden, you know, God had said, don't eat of the knowledge of the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, then Satan comes in there and says, did God really say that? And then we know that Eve even adds words to it and says, oh, we can't even touch it. Well, in some ways, the same has happened with this familiar passage in Luke 10, 38 through 42, with Jesus and Mary and Martha. Again, Jesus points out to Martha, you know, you're worried and distracted, but Martha's chosen this better thing. And I think so many of us have heard the message growing up that, you know, good Mary, bad Martha, you know, we need to be more like Mary. Now, we want to choose, you know, our share of the inheritance. We want to choose to connect with the Lord. That's all important. But that doesn't mean that being a doer is bad. In fact, faith without works is dead. And in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, we see that God has prepared works for us to do in advance you know, before we even came to be. And so works are definitely important. But I think the the freedom piece for Martha's is to realize that we don't have to do these things to be worthy. Through Jesus alone are we worthy. And then we can serve and do these things in thanksgiving and because we're so glad we're loved. And I think that differentiation helps us that are more like Martha to not overdo it when we realize that our worth was, you know, because God made us, it was cemented into ourselves before we could even lift a finger or complete a to-do list. My brother has Down syndrome and he has just as much worth and value as I do in God's eyes. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, I'm kind of handicapped in my ability to realize like, my productivity does not equal value, that my value comes, your value comes because God made us in his image from our creator, not because we're so great, you know. And so there's peace that comes from that because even on our worst day, he still loves us the same. And that can be really freeing for those of us that are made like Martha. Yeah, absolutely. On a more practical level, how can we sit at Jesus' feet, even as we go about our busy day and accomplish the things that God has given us to do? What does that look like? Well, you know, I think about the book by Brother Lawrence. It's an old one called Practicing the Presence of God. Yes. And if I'm getting this right, he was a monk and he had to wash the dishes. Now, that doesn't seem like a very, you know, spiritual part of being a monk, but it reminds me just like in church, like someone has to take the trash out, right? It's not going to take itself out. But that when we are have that awareness, who God is, who we are in him, we can go and surf in that place of peace and connect with him throughout the day. When we remember that he lives in us, like we talked about, that he's that family to enjoy, we can enjoy him throughout the day, not just when we have a quiet time. And I think that, at least for me, I kind of compartmentalize things like, okay, if I don't have a, you know, a good quiet time in the morning, then God's upset or he's rolling his eyes at me, you know, but he's not like that. He's a kind and patient father. And of course, 
He knows what's good for us, and prayer and Bible study, those are important parts of it, but those aren't the things that make us more loved by him. He loves us, period. And I think a real practical way for those of us that are made like Martha to um, not get into a frenzy is to remember three powerful words that we all know, right? Yes, no, and help. But we want to say yes to God's assignments. I can't tell you how many times I've said yes to other things just so that people would like me or because I felt guilty if I didn't do it. But we can help not overdo things when we say yes to God's assignments. And then we want to say no to guilt and manipulation. You know, sometimes when you're a reliable, dependable person, everyone comes to you to help them. And helping people is a great thing, but there's only so many hours in the day. So we don't want to say yes to things that God isn't leading us to do in that season, yet the trash shall be taken out, right? I'm not talking about being a diva or anything like that. But then the last one that's really hard for those of us that are made like Martha is to say help, to ask for help if we're overwhelmed. Um, And to remember that delegation isn't weak, it's wise. And getting other people on board can be a good thing. Yeah. As a modern Martha with five children, which sounds exhausting in and of itself, what advice do you have for navigating your to-do list when it comes to parenting? Well, kind of that delegation piece I was talking Mm -hmm. about. You know, our family is very much a team. And my daughter just started the swim team. Um, We've been homeschooling, but she's going to actually go to public high school this fall. And so, her schedule is very demanding right now. And she typically, her chores to do the dishes. So we're pitching in and helping her get that done because she's in this busy season. There's other times where, you know, when I was writing the book, I was in a really busy season. And so my daughter stepped up and started cooking more. You know, I think it's that team approach that it doesn't rest on one person's shoulders, but we're stronger and better when we're linking arms with one another. Now, for me, that means I have to give up control, and it can't be my way or the highway when it comes to how things get done. But I think, at least for me, the more kids I've had, the more I've had to loosen the reins so that I don't drive myself and everyone else crazy. (laughs) Yeah, you have to adjust your expectations somewhat. That's right. That's right. You write about receiving God's grace in the middle of the messes, and maybe this is a good place to ask the question. What do you mean by that? And how do our Martha personalities make us resistant to messes, which can be something of a challenge? Well, I am a recovering perfectionist, and I have a hunch that Martha was a perfectionist as well. You you want everything in its place and everything to have an order. And I was just thinking today, I was getting frustrated about some things. I'm like, why am I so frustrated? I'm like, I think it's because I want everything to be perfect. And it's not going to be. You know, I have small kids. They're going to make messes. That is signs of life in our home, which is a blessing, right? Someday I'll miss the smudges and the, you know, stray toilet paper down the hall. But um, I think, you know, receiving grace in the moment is just to realize, like, perfection is not up to me. You know, perfection resides within me in Jesus Christ. And I'm human. I'm not a machine. And I think that can be hard for Martha to remember. Like, yes, I need to sit down and eat. I need to get a good night's sleep. I will break if I don't take care of myself. And I think that's part of that receiving grace is to say, okay, 
I am not God. God is on the universe, and he can manage a whole world and my small one much better than I can. Yeah, absolutely. Well, once again, the name of the book is Made Like Martha, Good News for the Woman Who Gets Things Done. Uh, let me ask you, too, for listeners who are interested in following you, what's the best way to connect? Well, if you go to Katie M, M is in Martha, read reid.com, katiemreid.com, or madelikemartha.com. I'd love to connect. And as a gift for your listeners, too, if they go to madelikemartha.com, they can read chapter one for free. So that will give them a taste of the book. And then on Facebook, it's Katie M. Reed. And Instagram and Twitter is Katie underscore M underscore Reed. Would love to connect. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks so much for having me. It was my pleasure. Appreciate it. Again, the book is titled Made Like Martha, Good News for the Woman Who Gets Things Done. The book is published by Waterbrook. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we're going to hear a classic interview with Jack Deere, author of Even in Our Beauty, a story of beauty in a broken life. That's coming up in our next segment. Well, Multnomah County health officials held a virtual news conference yesterday to address the county's rising number of COVID-19 cases. Dr. Jennifer Vines, who's the county health officer and the communicable, <laughs> communicable disease director, uh, Kim Toves, said they expected cases to rise in the county as more family and social gatherings began to happen starting around Memorial Day. She expected people to start mixing more as the virus finds its way into work sites and social networks. We know that the virus will spread. Well, Multnomah County's 17 new cases at that time were about 12% of Monday's total in the state. On Sunday, the county saw 84 new cases, which was 44% of the state's total for that day. Prevention is going to be the key for the next several months. Vines pointed to social distancing, face coverings, and hand hygiene. Now, I think it's fascinating that um, people who are within family groups is cited as the primary reason for the increase in the numbers without any reference to uh, the close proximity of protesters that have gone on for the, what is this, a 20-plus day that includes today in the Portland area and elsewhere. Now, I had uh, literally, I had uh, several marches that took place in front of my home, thousands and thousands of people chanting and marching down my street. Uh, very few of them had face coverings of any kind, and of course, you are aspirating on one another as you're yelling and chanting and all of that walking down the street. No mention of that whatsoever. It's been, it started weeks ago. It's ongoing. It's continuing. But somehow that has not been responsible for any new COVID-19 cases. I find that fascinating and quite unbelievable. But I have said before that politics trumps science. It doesn't matter what the science says. If it's a cause that the, the leaders deem worthy, you don't get a mention. It's not your fault. You're not involved in the increase in numbers. Credibility, I think there's a problem. Meanwhile, in Seattle, they say they're going to move to end the police-free zone known as the Capitol Hill Organized Protest, or CHOP, after two recent shootings, one of which was deadly. This is according to the mayor, who announced yesterday uh, that a stunning chapter in the city's history could be drawing to a close. Now, stunning, she probably means one thing by that, but people in Seattle mean quite another. The mayor said the violence was distracting from changes sought by thousands of peaceful protesters, the cumulative impacts of the gatherings and protests and the nighttime atmosphere and violence has led to increasingly difficult circumstances for our businesses and residents, she says, days into this social experiment. 
Uh, the impacts have increased and the safety has decreased. Well, city leaders have faced mounting criticism, including from President Trump, over the protest zone with reports of violence inside the area and how police can respond to such in, uh, incidents. I should say cannot respond. Police haven't been able to go inside the zone. The dismantling of CHOP followed the death of a 19-year-old in a Saturday shooting in which another person was injured, and my understanding is seriously injured. On Sunday, the 17-year-old was shot in the arm on the edge of the area. Well, demonstrators inside CHOP have been mostly peaceful, handing out free food and playing music, productive, but a more dangerous atmosphere has become evident at night. Residents and business owners have voiced concerns over safety and access for emergency first responders. In one case where an incident uh, occurred, the store was, uh, was robbed, and there was an attempt to set it on fire. More than a dozen calls were placed. Law enforcement did not come. They never arrived. Volunteer medics inside the zone, medic used rather broadly, uh, brought the victims of Saturday's shooting to the hospital rather than wait for the police and fire departments who were not permitted inside. They were preparing to um, uh, respond before entering. There should be no place in Seattle that the Seattle Fire Department and the Portland Police can't go, the mayor now says. Protesters have issued a list of demands, including calls to defend, rather defund the police and for leaders to address other social justice well, protests continue in the Portland area for the fourth straight weeks as groups are gathering at Jefferson High School to make their way elsewhere. On Monday evening, a group led by Rose City Justice, a civil rights collective, met at Jefferson High School, according to an Instagram post for the group. The protest highlighted the life of Kendra James. James, you may or may not recall, was shot and killed by Portland police in 2003 during a traffic stop. The 21-year-old was unarmed. She was in the back seat of a car that police uh, pulled over for not fully stopping at a stop sign, which is not in the city of Portland, a capital offense. A private grand jury declined to, pro- to prosecute the officer who killed James. There was public outcry at that time, and a lawsuit was filed in 2005. A jury ruled that the officer was justified in that shooting. Well, Commissioner Joanne Hardesty talked about James at last Wednesday's city council meeting when the city passed the 2021 budget, city council ended up slashing $15 million from the Portland police budget, which was far short of the $50 million that uh, protesters had called for. And the mayor's uh, home was um, picketed the day after. Protesters have been calling for city officials to defund the police for weeks. Well, on Monday, demonstrators marched in North Portland, starting and ending the evening at Jefferson High School. A video on Instagram showed the group stopped briefly on the Skidmore overpass for speakers to talk to the crowd. And during another gathering on Monday night at the Portland Justice Center, police said demonstrators blocked traffic. Officers arrested two people, 29 and 52-year-olds, respectively, for interfering with a peace officer. And the protests continue. There's much that can be said about what's going on in our community right now. And Um, I am heartened by seeing more and more uh, believers speaking out in a balanced and biblical way on these issues, and I would uh, call for just that. Uh, I'm also discouraged by some of the militant voices that I'm hearing, and I'm hoping that all of us, as we consider, Lord, what would you have me do? And uh, as we pray, Lord, what's in my own heart? Help me to recognize if there is bitterness or hatred or any of the things that should not reside in the heart of a believer, that we would ask God to expose the weakness in our own heart so that we could emerge as people of peace and reconciliation. And I hope that's happening. I know that there have been prayer meetings taking place most evenings for weeks here in the city of Portland, in the uh, state capital in Salem and elsewhere, where people are bending the knee and acknowledging we don't know what direction to take. 
Um, we are hearing demands that unless we say certain things, unless we embrace certain ideas, that somehow we are complicit in uh, racism in our community. I reject that notion. It matters what one actually says and what one actually does. But it's important for us as followers of Christ, uh, not just to simplify it by saying, what would Jesus do? But ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and to give us wisdom. Lord, what would you have me uh, do? And to ask him to examine our own hearts. Is there bitterness there? Is there resentment? Is there hatred? Are we uh, shielding from our own uh, minds uh, areas that need shoring up? I can't tell you the number of times I've been in religious services and offensive things have been said. I've heard the N-word in the sanctuary of a church. Things that go on, and people are blissfully unaware of how offensive uh, they uh, they can be. And I'm not excluding myself. I'm perfectly capable of being offensive on my own. But within this area of, of race, let's ask the Lord to examine our own hearts. We tend to... Um, pick our side and stay there. We defend ourselves one way or the other. I'm not suggesting that most people are racists or that uh, listeners to this station are, but I just would ask that all of us ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, see if, if there's any wicked way in me so that I can respond in a way as a believer in Christ that resonates with authority and genuine love and a spirit of peace. So that's my hope for all of us moving forward. And we'll certainly continue to follow the events of our day uh, and uh, do so from a bended knee, a position of humility and a recognition that without Christ, apart from him, we are not going to resolve the issues that have been brought to the fore. It is uh, absolutely appropriate for us to seek justice. The scripture says that uh, we are to seek justice, but in our pursuit of justice, we have to maintain Christian character. We have to do it in a way that's honoring to Christ, and that is the challenge um, that all of us must uh, take moving forward. Maybe for you, it's just a private conversation with someone else in the community. Maybe you're called to a position of leadership. Maybe you stand behind a pulpit or a Bible study leader and you have influence over others who are struggling with how to respond during this season. And I pray all of us would use our influence wisely, led by the Holy Spirit, not by our preconceived positions in all of this, that we would reject some of the hyperbole and some of the requirements that are coming out of uh, the more militant faction of all of this, and that we would be followers of Jesus in our thinking, in our hearts, and with the words that we use. Okay, we need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, a classic interview with Jack Deere, Even in Our Beauty, a story of beauty in a broken life. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. On the morning of December 31st in the year 2000, my next guest writes that I watched a white cardboard coffin travel up a conveyor belt into the belly of a Boeing 757 along with other baggage. The body in that coffin had belonged to my son, but he had gambled with it once too often. Well, thus opens the memoir of best-selling author, pastor, and professor Jack Deere, Even in Our Darkness, A Story of Beauty in a Broken Life. Uh, He confronts the question of where God is when your life falls apart, not from the distance of a successful writer, theologian, or minister, but from the center of suffering and loss. Some of you are very familiar with that place. Well, he sold more than 300,000 books in the late 1990s and then stopped publishing. Here he reveals where he's been for the last 20-some years, in a season of loss and turmoil. The litany of tragedy includes the drug addiction and suicide of his son, his wife turning to alcohol to cope with her grief and shame, and his inability to see the damage his pride inflicted on those closest to him. 
It's an unsanitized version of the Christian life, he says. Truly the only version that exists. Well, the heart of the book is not about suffering, but about finding a friendship with God, feeling loved by God, and being able to enjoy God. Suffering is one of the tools that God uses to deepen our friendship with him, he says. And I've, ha- I've had pain I did not deserve. I never had pain I did not need. Well, Jack Deere is a writer and lecturer who speaks uh, throughout the world. Formerly, he was an assistant professor of Old Testament at Dallas Theological Seminary for more than 10 years until he was fired in 1987 for reversing his stance on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He had come to believe that the gifts such as healing and prophecy are accessible today. The experience became the basis of his best-selling books, Surprised by the Power of the Spirit and Surprised by the Voice of God. He has uh, spent... um, uh, then rather spent four years uh, with John Wimber of the Vineyard Christian Fellowship in Anaheim, California, and went on to pastor other churches. He and his wife, Lisa, currently live in St. Louis. They are the parents of Stephen, Elise, and their late son, Scott Deer. He joins us today to talk about his latest book. Again, the title of that book, Even in Our Darkness, A Story of Beauty and a Broken Life. Thank you so much for joining us. This is a difficult book, but it's one that is, um, it needed to be written, and it inspires us to consider the challenges that life brings in perhaps a a different way. You're very candid, not only about the events of your life, but about uh, your own heart, even though you were at the height of of your career and uh, were highly respected as an author um, and speaker and pastor. Uh, Why was this memoir and its... um, rawness, if you will, important to write for you? Well, for a couple of reasons. Um, the first part of my life I spent relating to God as though what he really wanted more than anything else was obedience. And, and, it's, and when you think that, it's hard not to think of God in terms of obligation. And that makes for a really unsatisfying life. And I was, I'd probably been a Christian for uh, maybe 20 years before I really came to grips with that famous text in John fifteen fifteen, where Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, but friends. And when I started praying to be a friend of God, my life started changing. My spiritual life started changing. The essence of friendship, for any of us who've had a best friend, the essence is not service, it's pleasure. We have this unique chemistry with our best friend, and we have a joy when we're with that friend that we don't experience with someone else. And in, in that joy, there, there comes a, a spontaneous accountability. Um, in, in obligation sort of snuffs out, or, or at least it limits that, that pleasure a lot. So I began, began to pray that I would become uh, a best friend of the Lord Jesus. And I began to feel his pleasure in me, have different experiences of that, and, and began to enjoy him at a new level. And I searched for 10 years uh, for a way to write about that. And, and uh, Everything I wrote after the death of my son just came out like this lifeless cliche. I couldn't, I, I just couldn't find something that was satisfying to me. And I ended up going into a rehab for, for uh, my anger uh, issues. And in that rehab, I had an amazing experience and uh, started writing again. So that, that's, that's the purpose of the book. It's to explain how, how a person goes from being a Christian to actually coming to a place where we enjoy God. And in the process of that, uh, our sins don't go away. Um, in fact, sometimes we, get, we become more aware of our sins. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what, so the reason I'm candid about my sins 
is in my earlier days as a pastor, I used to stand on a stage and describe this life, this Christian life, that nobody really lived. It was an idealized version of the Christian life. And I presented a version of myself that didn't exist. And I've come to see what I was actually doing in those days is I was teaching people to go underground with their sin uh, because they're not going to admit they don't live that idealized version. Um, and, and, and I'm presenting that as normal, so they must be subnormals. So they're not going to admit their sin. They're going to go underground with it. And when we take our sins underground, that's where they flourish. Um, 50% of the power of the most evil stuff in us is broken once we just confess it to someone who loves us. So that's why I'm, I try to be as honest as I can about the sins and things that my wife and I struggled with. And you're right, there is something very freeing about that kind of honesty that encourages readers to have an honest relationship with God, um, as you have uh, since discovered. You describe your um, your early life as uh, a childhood transformed by violence and abandonment, uh, the rages of um, an unhappy mother and a suicidal father or a father who committed suicide. Uh, so your your early years uh, were transformed from a happy life to one that is characterized by an unhappy life. Tell us a little bit about your background growing up. Yeah, so uh, my dad was my hero. Uh, he was a World War II hero. He was a chief petty officer, wounded. He taught hand-to-hand combat. He knew the answer to every single question I ever asked him. He was a reader, although he was raised on a farm in Mississippi during the Depression. Uh, he was my hero in, in so many ways. My mom was beautiful, and uh, I never saw her read a book, but in those early early days, I'd say up until I was about six years old, I remember her being so gentle and kind. And, uh, and in about six years of age, uh, my parents went to war, and I didn't understand what had happened. Uh, and I have two younger brothers, and then a baby sister came along. And mom's rage uh, was just uncontrollable. And dad became more and more absentee. And the more absentee she came, the angrier she got and the more critical she got. And, uh, and she took that rage out, started taking that rage out on us. And eventually, uh, she called them spankings, but eventually she gave us regular uh, beatings. And, you, you, and the rules for the engagement, our home was like a battlefield with unknowable rules for engagement. She, there would be sweetness and she would be the den mother of our Cub Scout thing, uh, and the next minute she's violent and she's beating us with a rosebush, which is an, and never saying you're going to get 10 swats or whatever, just beating us until uh, uh, until her rage baited, until, until uh, all the anger was gone. And uh, my parents not only had no Christian friends, they had no friends. Um, traumatic homes, sick, sick homes, they don't, sick homes don't have uh, friends, they have secrets. And so nobody actually knew what was going on in our uh, in our home, and, and the kids couldn't explain it. We just learned to adjust to it. And it, I had anger that was put into me uh, in those early days, uh, and, a, and a sense of perfectionism like my mom. And uh, I didn't know that it, it, even in my adult life. I didn't. I, I thought my past was irrelevant to my adult life, and so I spent so much of my the first part of my adult life in anger and in perfectionism. Uh, the things that make people around you really unhappy. You write that in high school you dabbled in shoplifting, drinking, troublemaking, but shortly after your 17th birthday, a friend by the name of Bruce 
uh, shared Jesus with you, and you came to a saving faith in, in Jesus Christ. Yeah, I had, uh, it w- there was a circle of eight of us. We were all athletes, except for Bruce. Uh, but Bruce was the smart guy in the group, and he's the guy that knew more about sex than anybody else. He had older sisters. And uh, so that's what, what, what kept Bruce in the, in the game and in there with us. He was kind of like the fount of sexual knowledge for us. And, and in the summer before our sophomore year, he chased a blonde named Dixie uh, to church camp, and he didn't catch Dixie. He caught Southern Baptist Hellfire Damnation religion. And so we kicked Bruce out of our group, and uh, he prayed for me every day for 18 months. I didn't know that, uh, but he considered me his best friend. And so for every day for 18 months, he prayed for me. On December 18, 1965, he invited me to spend the night at his house, and if I would spend the night at his house, he would introduce me to these two new beautiful girls from Pasco High School. That's Fort Worth's famous high school, wealthy on the west side. And uh, so I did. And that night, about 2 o'clock in the morning, I don't know why I asked him this question. We were both in, in beds uh, uh, falling asleep. I asked him, how do you get to heaven? And he said, Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. That was the first time I ever heard that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. And you say, how do you live in the Bible Belt and get that message? Well, I had no Christian friends. We never went to church. Um, There wasn't religious TV. I didn't know anything about Christian books. So, and my teachers didn't talk about uh, the Lord or or, uh, religion or Christianity. So that was the first time I ever heard that Jesus died on the cross for me. And then Bruce said, if you will trust him to forgive you, he will give you a new life and come into your heart and never leave again. And uh, I said, that can't be true. And Bruce says, oh, yeah, it's true. When you're 17 years old and everyone you've ever loved has left you, to hear that uh, the greatest person in the world, uh, the perfect person in the world, won't leave you, it's just too good to be true. And I asked him, how do you know that? And he quoted Jesus' words, John 10, 28. It was the first verse of Scripture I ever heard, where Jesus says, I give my sheep eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. And I was instantly born again when I heard that word. I could not have told you I was born again. I had zero Christian vocabulary. Repentance, salvation, confession, none of the born again, none of that stuff was in my vocabulary. All I did was when, when I heard he would never leave me, when I heard that promise, I just said in my heart, I'm coming over to you, God. And, and that was the night I was born again. And about two or three days later, I told Bruce about it. He came running over to my house, stuck a King James Bible under my nose, took me through the Sermon on the Mount, and said, here, read this. And I've been reading the Bible ever since. Mm-hmm. That's an encouragement for anyone who's praying for a friend. Now, you write of yourself that from the start, your faith was marked by hypocrisy and pride, that you were oblivious to the underlying truth of what Jesus said. Uh, so your your life wasn't maturing in a way that uh, one would hope. Uh, talk about the early days of your faith and how that impacted your, your relationships, your marriage, and ultimately your family. Well, it, it, there was a mixture of, of uh, good and bad. There was a childlike quality to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a, uh, so I'm a fabulous boy. I've got no model, no role model of any man I want to be like, except the killers in the movies that I watched back in those. Clint Eastwood and Sean Connery, Steve McQueen. And so three months after I became a Christian, a young life leader named Scott Manley came into my life. We didn't have a young life club at my high school. I met him in the church that I went to. 
and he became like my best friend, my spiritual father. Um, and he and he taught me. He, he did just what Jesus did for uh, the apostles. I I often ask people. Um, the only person who never needed any help chose 12 helpers. Why did he do it? And the answer is, for the pleasure it gave him to love those 12 men, to teach them to love the things he loved, so that they would have a life that could count for all eternity. And that's what Scott Manley did for me. He loved me, and he taught me to love the things he loved. So he taught me how to memorize scripture. He taught me how to memorize books of the Bible by uh, giving the paragraphs in, in each book three word title, memorizing the titles, and then thinking your way through the book. He taught me how to lead people to Christ. He taught me how to tell my story. Then he taught me how to give messages. And one of the greatest things he ever did for me is he put C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters in my hand when I was 17 years old, and he said, let's read this together, see what you think of. And, and that was a transforming experience. I'd never read a Christian book before, and I became a C.S. Lewis devotee, and it just totally changed my life. I ended up being a philosophy major. So those were, and there was sweetness with God, and I became a young life leader, led lots of kids to Christ. That's the good side. The bad side is I knew that I knew more scripture than even men in the church. I could argue with with philosophy professors in, in college and, and hold my own or hold my own in an argument with a, a scientific group. My life club grew up to be 250 kids on a Monday night. And so I, I look around and I see that, you know, I, am, uh, I stand out in that group. And so there's this kind of pride and superiority. Instead of thinking that this is all a gift from God, that Scott Manley was this major gift from God, and that God had given me a mind that could do Greek and Hebrew, I started thinking this is my discipline or, or this part of me that thought that, that it was my discipline. And so this kind of pride that I had felt as a child growing up, I just, I took over mom's anger, her sense of entitlement. Um, and so, uh, so it's, it's like, it's not that I was devoid of love or devoid of affection, um, but uh, I, I, my harshness so often, hurt people. People would say, Jack, that's so harsh. And I go, no, I'm just telling you the truth and love. You're just oversensitive. Mm. And that, uh, and uh, the other good thing about me is I always had one or two best friends that, that I loved, uh, with all my heart and that we could tell each other our secrets. So there's this mixture of pride and arrogance and harshness with kind of like a childlike heart. Somebody that really does value deep relationships, does value ministry. I just, I took hundreds of kids and taught them to love what I love. So if you went to Richland Hills High School back in the late 60s or early 70s, you would see kids carrying C.S. Lewis books under their, uh, under their arms with their school books, uh, navigator scripture verses in their, in their pocket. And I referred to my kids and the principal made me the pastor of the school. I, I, the nurse gave me her office to counsel in. I could actually get a kid out of class and, uh, for, for a, a private uh, meeting. I had carte blanche uh, uh, access to the school, lunches and football practices, basketball practices, and, and so on. So there's a mixture of yeah. really good and really bad stuff uh, in me. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
Now, as you described your young Christian life, by any measure, by any standard, you were a successful uh, young man in terms of walking out your faith in a way that was influencing others. But the title of your book is Even in Our Darkness, and obviously there were events that took place later in life that really challenged you to the core. Let's start where you begin in the book, and as I read earlier, it's with the, uh, the death of your son, and things began to, to crumble for you and your family. Yeah, so everything, I mean, if you look at my life from the time, just outwardly, from the time I was 17 to 52, virtually everything I touched turned to gold. At 17, I don't know a single uh, verse of scripture. At 27, I'm a professor of Old Testament exegesis and Semitic languages at Dallas Seminary, and I can teach Greek equally well. Uh, I start a, uh, a church during that time, and a lot of the aristocracy of the city comes to it. That church is still in existence, and this last Easter, I think they had twelve or 14,000 people there. I can't, re- I can't remember. And then I got this beautiful family, this stunningly beautiful wife, sweet, kind, three adorable uh, kids. I end up getting fired from the seminary, and then I get promoted uh, to, to, to be the right hand of John Wimber, who was one of the, he, in the 80s, in the 90s, you would see him on the cover of Christian magazines. Mm-hmm. He was one of the ones one of the most well-known figures in the Christian world during that time. And I travel around the world, and I meet all kinds of leaders with him and uh, have this incredible experience. I end up in Montana on top of a mountain, this, this stunningly beautiful place, writing books that get translated into 12, 14 languages, sell all around the world. Uh, I travel all around the world, first class, speaking at conferences. So I'm, that's from 17 to 52. I really happy, fulfilled life, in spite of the things that are wrong within me. And the one, the one uh, uh, bad spot in our life is our second-born son, Scott, our blonde-haired charmer who was the life of every party he was ever in. Um, he could make us laugh more than anybody else. Had movie star looks. He got into drugs when he was, uh, when he was 13. And I, and I prayed for him more than I prayed for any other person. And, and for 10 years, we were in that drug battle. He, he was in rehab for part of the time at seven months, and he would, he, he would get clean for a while, and he was clean for most of his 19th year. We had just had an incredible uh, time. But on December, uh, December 27th, 2000, he went out with his girlfriend that night. Or actually, it was actually the 26th at night. He went out with his uh, girlfriend, got some drugs, came back to our home and uh, shot himself about 5 o'clock in the morning with a 44 uh, Magnum. They found five different substances in his body. Not None of them in themselves are lethal, but when you mix them, they form a lethal cocktail that uh, causes a psychotic break. And when that happened, I, uh, uh, I heard the shot. It's about 5 o'clock in the morning. I was deep in sleep. I woke up, and I didn't hear anything else, and I thought, huh, I must be dreaming. And later that morning, I, I was up working on my next book, and uh, I opened the door to his room. There was a noise, a broken DVD player that was malfunctioning. I opened the door and saw what no parent should ever see. Mm. Uh, my, my wife, my son, and my daughter and I gathered around his body, and we said, we're going to pray for the Lord to bring him back to life until the Lord brings him back to life or until a please come and make us leave. And so... I held his shattered head in my hands and 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 prayed for 30 minutes. All, all of us did until the police came and made us leave. And uh, that was the worst day of my life. And 
I didn't know this then, but when the worst day of your life comes, it's only the beginning of bad. You're going to be dragged through so much more worse uh, things before you begin to come up for air and, and live in the light again. This had to have been devastating for your family. The grief was too much for your wife, and she spiraled into a very dark place as well. At this point, how did you cry out to God? Was it anger? Was it? Uh, did you feel exposed that what I have in my relationship with God is insufficient to carry me through this? How did your faith, how was your faith impacted at this point in your family grief? You know, uh, it, in some ways, everything was impacted. So uh, I prayed more for my son than I ever prayed for anyone else. So I think, so now I'm thinking, why pray? What's the point of praying? I mean, I, my mind knows better, but I'm just, that's where I am on my feeling level. But by this time, I mean, God has done so much for me. I would have been dead before I was 21 had God not stepped into my life and arranged it. I was that reckless, that careless, that wild. And so I know in my heart of hearts, the only hope I have is God. I can't figure out why he let this happen. I'm watching uh, Lisa. Uh, just I thought she was going to die of insanity. I thought she was going to fall into this abyss of grief and end up losing her mind for months. Uh, she cried herself to sleep uh, every night, sometimes an hour and a half. And, and sometimes she would just say, I miss Scotty. I miss Scotty. I don't think I can live without Scotty. And this might go on for uh, for an hour. Um, so, Pat, here's somebody yesterday, yesterday, in fact, I was in a church in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, and someone was asking me, what happens to me? What do you say to someone whose child has committed suicide? And, and uh, so you don't... Not what you say to them. There's no paradigm for this. But God himself will come uh, in amazing ways. So I'll, I'll just tell you one story um, that, that demonstrates what he did for me over and over and over. He did not take away the pain, but he came down in such a way as to say, I'm in this with you, and I will be with you if you stay with me. So I spent from 95 to 2000 traveling around the world, doing conferences, uh, wrote two more books, um, speaking for God. But in my heart of hearts, I was, I was heavily involved in the stock market. And uh, I'm a poor kid. I, I, I come from a poor family. And, uh, and so I was, I was becoming rich in the stock market. I was reading more about uh, uh, the market than I was about theology or scripture. So I told someone the other day, I'm, I'm an expert at leaving God, but making myself look like he and I are still fine. Mm. And so if, you, if you've looked at me uh, outwardly, you go, hey, the guy's writing books, he's speaking, you know, he's actually helping lead people to Christ. But inwardly, my real joy had, had become all these, all these uh, stocks that I had. In some days, Virginia, uh, uh, back in uh, between 95 and 2000, I made more money in a single day than, I'd, than my annual salary had, had been in the past. And I was approaching the point by uh, the spring of 2000, I was approaching the point where I, I would never have to work again. Uh, I mean, I, I could do whatever I wanted. I, could, I was going to cash out in the middle of the summer, put everything in a safe interest-bearing account, and be completely free. So I, for the last five years before I lost my son, I'm still praying for my son and all that, but I, the, the joy, a lot of the joy in my life is coming from what I think is just smart financial move. And all I was doing 
was investing in tech stocks and denying that it was a bubble. So I lose my son. Now money means nothing. You, you know, you can always get money back, uh, but you can never get a son back. So it's two weeks after the funeral. We're, we're, we're still living in the home with our uh, best friends from 30 years ago, John and Nancy Snyder, huge home. And uh, my secretary comes in. No, excuse me. The bill from the funeral company comes in. That's $10,064.69. And they would like their money right now. It took them two, uh, two weeks to find us because we didn't have an address anymore. 30 minutes later, my secretary comes in, and she brings a huge sack of mail, and I know exactly what it is. I dump it out, and there are 38 sympathy cards. And out of those 38 sympathy cards fall 22 checks, one check for each year of Scott's life. The funeral bill was $10,064.69. I total up the checks, and they're $10,065. And I I didn't say thank you, God. I was stunned. My heart was beating so fast. My my brain was, what does this mean? And I still had money in the bank. I didn't need that money. I had money in the bank to uh, pay for the funeral and, and then some. But eventually, I would lose all the money. But at that time, I didn't need this at all. And finally, I just said, God, what are you saying? And then I heard these three sentences. I paid for his death. I paid for his life. And I'll pay for everything you need the rest of your life. Mm. I just broke, I broke down sobbing. I mean, I had ignored God for five years for money. So if that's what I loved, he would speak to me with money to get my heart back. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Jack Deere. His uh, book is titled Even in Our Darkness, A Story of Beauty and a Broken Life. (sighs) The book is published by Zondervan. We'll uh, be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we're continuing our conversation with Jack Deere, author of Even in Our Darkness, A Story of Beauty in a Broken Life. What you've just described is a miraculous demonstration of God's love for you, reaching out in a way that you could hear. You write about the book that uh, it's not about suffering, but about finding a friendship with God, feeling loved by God, and being able to enjoy God, and that suffering is one of the tools that God uses to deepen our friendship with Him. Now, for some of our listeners who are in that acute phase of suffering, uh, this may ring hollow because they haven't had that experience. But let's talk a little bit about how God uses suffering to draw us to himself and how he expresses his love for us, even when we are suffering loss. Yeah. So God is a great father and and great fathers, great mothers never cause their children pain unless it's absolutely necessary. Unless it's as fathers and mothers, we will cause our child pain to to protect them from some far worse, more destructive pain or to get something in their life that we're not able, we're not able to get in another way. And I, I think God does the very same thing. So in Hebrews 12, it says, the, the writer says, God scourges every child he receives. And, that's, and he uses the same word, scourge, that was used for Jesus' scourging. So he's saying God will permit tremendous pain, uh, but he does it for our own good. He says none of this seems joyful at the time, but after, afterwards, it yields this peaceful fruit and, and discipline. So if anybody wants to become 
great friends with God, they have to do two things. They have to make friends with their pain. That's Hebrews 12, 1 to 5. Uh, or excuse me, that's Hebrews 12, 5 to uh, 12, the end of the chapter. But prior to that, he says, consider Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. In other words, give full attention to him. Talk to him. Um, Ask his opinion on things. Uh, keep him right at the center. So focus on him, not your performance. That is a loser. Focusing on your performance is always going to be a loser. Make the main focus on him, and then make friends with your pain. And and telling somebody that pain is going to make us better when they're just entering into it or in the midst of it is not good. Uh, we're the ones now that get those calls when children commit suicide. We're one of the first ones to go in the home. And, and I don't come and say... Uh, you know, I'm totally healed now, although I am, I think, totally healed now. I don't come in and say that kind of thing. I come in and ask them to tell their story, and then they'll ask me to tell mine. Um, and then they'll have specific questions about, uh, you know, when you found this body, and I'm, it's graphic, I don't want to go into it, but they mm-hmm. will ask those same things. And just having another person in the room with you who's been through something as horrific as this, and uh, and it's functional, uh, and without you saying that you, there, there's been an overcoming up, they can see it and it causes uh, hope. And the thing that was most important for us was when we lost our son, our friends gathered around us and cried with us and loved us. That's what our best friends did. Nobody tried to get God off the hook. Nobody tried to explain suffering or that sort of thing. So that's my our first response is just to love people and be available to them. Uh, people washed our clothes. Uh, they made uh, dinners for us. I couldn't make a decision about my son's funeral, his casket or anything. And my friends just gathered around and they did uh, all that. So it, it, in those early stages, I, I don't I, I don't try to take the pain away or rationalize it or say, you know, all things work together for the good to those who love God. There's a time to say Romans 28 and there's a time not to say it. Yeah. Um, and just writing this book, two of my friends have read this book um, and found great help in it. In these this last uh, few months, and in the last two months, both of their uh, sons have committed suicide. Mm. Mm. The and, subtitle. And then, um, Go ahead. Oh, and I'm the one they call. I mean, yeah. uh, and the subtitle of your book is a story of beauty in a broken life. For those who are in the midst of the broken life and haven't yet uh, seen or experienced that beauty, how would you describe it? Having gone through what you have gone through, and then. Uh, put yourself in a position where you're comforting others who are going through the same thing. Yeah, so um, the, the great, the greatest prayer in the whole world outside of Jesus was King David. Uh, we're still singing and uh, using his prayers. Two billion people are still using those prayers today. They were three. They were uh, written three thousand years ago. Nobody's got that track record except David. And then David boiled all his prayers down to one single prayer. In Psalm 27, 4, he said, um, uh, One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. And, and the beauty um, is, is what dazzles us. And so what David was asking for was not more knowledge of God's attributes, but he was asking for an experience of God's character, of his wisdom, love, power, compassion, mercy, that would dazzle him. And, it take, and he, so he's asking for a revelatory experience of, of God in such a way that he's dazzled by 
the beauty. And so when, when I talk about a beautiful life, it's a person who not just once sees the beauty of God, but it's like a driving thing in his or her life. And it, it's, it's not continual, but, but there, there are these glimpses of his beauty that allow us, um, that, that just, just like that experience I just described with him giving me almost the exact sum of months, you know, that was an experience of the, of the beauty mm-hmm. of his brilliance and his love and his absolute commitment to me. I was dazzled by that. And I, I can live off that for so long. In fact, even talking about it some days, when I tell that story, I start crying all over again. So that's what, that's what I'm looking for every day in life now. I'm looking for God to break through in some way and let me have a glimpse of his beauty and the actual experience of it. And then I talk about these all the time when I preach or stand before people. I'm just one-on-one. I'm, I'm talking about ex- experiences of his beauty, hoping to lead people into a similar uh, experience. Yeah, yeah. Well, the book is titled Even in Our Darkness, A Story of Beauty and a Broken Life. Uh, it's published by Zondervan, and there's there's so much more in the book than our conversation could reflect. So I would highly recommend it. And I thank you so much for being willing to write uh, in such a way that, that gives us a, a glimpse into what not only your life is like, but what so many of our lives are like in terms of our walk with uh, with the Lord. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me on the show. God bless. Again, uh, John Deere, or rather Jack Deere, is the author, Even in Our Darkness, A Story of Beauty and a Broken Life. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. I wanted to close with a bit of an article from Victor Davis Hanson. He wrote about Seattle's chop and the radical left and how cultural revolutions die or not. He, um, in an article that was uh, from about a week ago in the Tribune Media Service Publishing, uh, wrote that unlike coups or political revolutions, cultural revolutions don't just change governments or leaders. Instead, they try to redefine entire societies. Their leaders call them holistic and systematic. Cultural revolutionaries attack the very reference of their our daily lives. The Jacobins, so-called reign of terror during the French Revolution, slaughtered Christian clergy, renamed months, and created a new soup, a supreme being called reason. Mao cracked down on supposed Western decadence like the wearing of eyeglasses and made peasants forge pot iron and intellectuals wear dunce caps. Muammar Gaddafi's Green Book cult wiped out violins and forced Libyans to raise chickens in their apartments. The current Black Lives Matter revolution has canceled certain movies, television shows, and cartoons, toppled statues, tried to create new autonomous urban zones, and renamed streets and plazas. Some fanatics shaved their heads. Others have shamed authorities into washing the feet of their fellow revolutionaries. But invariably, inevitably, cultural revolutions die out when they turn cannibalistic. Once the Red Guards started killing uh, party hacks too close to Mao, it began to wane. If toppling Confederate statues is required, what then about Nancy Pelosi's own mayor father, who once, as Baltimore's mayor, dedicated honorific statues to Confederate generals? If racists, understandably, do not deserve their names on national shrines, what to do with the iconic liberal graduate program at Princeton, the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs? It was named for a president who did more to further segregation and racial prejudice than any chief executive of the 20th century. Stanford and Yale, coveted brand names of the progressive professional classes, are named after what protesters now deem racists. It is easier to target Fort Bragg, the iconic military base named after a Confederate general, racist and military mediocrity, than 
to see one's MBA or PhD lose its Yale luster or to confess that a liberal presidential icon perpetuated racism. Once a cultural revolution gets going, there can be no contextualization of the past, no allowance for human frailty, no consideration of weighing evil versus good. Eventually, the architects of cultural upheavals always make two miscalculations. One, they presume that destroying things will never apply to themselves, given their loud virtue signaling. Two, if they are fingered by the mob, they assume they can somehow use their clout and influence to win an exception or an exemption of sorts. What burns out these cultural upheaval, upheavals rather, is that today's revolutionary can be denounced as tomorrow's sellout. In other words, once cultural revolution turns anarchic and eat their own, they lose support. When quiet sympathizers conclude that they too may be targeted, to survive, they turn on their former icons. We are seeing that even now. Liberal sympathetic bystanders are wondering whether downtown arson and looting will go private and reach their suburban homes. Do they really want their marquee universities or the Washington or Jefferson monuments defaced or renamed? What happens when calling 911 or 911 gets a constant busy signal? When a liberal mayor or black police chief or progressive governor or white leftist who diverges from the party line is targeted by the mob, then who really is safe? The answer, of course, is no one. And so the cultural revolution sputters to irrelevance. What deflated the Me Too movement was the high toll that the accusations took among the Hollywood and cultural elite. Suddenly, progressive celebrities began demanding evidence and insisting on presumed innocence when their careers were destroyed. What burns out these cultural upheavals is that today's revolutionary can be denounced as tomorrow's sellout. No leader wants to share Robespierre's rendezvous with his own guillotine. There is one caveat. Sometimes cultural revolutions don't die out if they are hijacked by a thug or a killer. The National Socialist Movement was an irrelevant, nihilistic mob of crazies until Adolf Hitler turned it into his personal genocidal cult. A murderous Stalin resuscitated the absurdities of Lenin's failing Bolshevism. The present madness will wane like a virus as it eats its own and terrifies its sympathizers that they may be next, unless, of course, a would-be Napoleon uses a whiff of grape shot and turns the mob into his personal cult. The armored rapper Raz Simeon, who some say lords over the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone in downtown Seattle, so far as neither the diabolic talent nor the resources to spread his anarchy. Dissident generals may be misguided, but they remain patriots. So far, we have seen no Napoleon emerge to claim that he is only the, the only man rather who can lead today's urban revolutionaries to victory. A final thought? Cultural revolutions not only eventually die without cruel dictators, but they can span and spawn rather dramatic pushbacks. Ronald Reagan was the answer to the radical 60s. Revolutionaries are now sowing the wind, but they have a little idea of the reactive whirlwind they may soon reap. It's an interesting perspective on what's happening now and what's likely to happen in the days ahead. We'll continue to watch um, which way the wind is blowing, who takes advantage of this current trend, and who ultimately ends up on the guillotine of the movement's own making. Uh, but again, it's, it behooves all of us to spend some time in prayer about what the future may hold and what role we may play in it. I'm grateful that we are not dependent on the outcome of the events of uh, today in our community and across the country. Uh, whether or not the election is won by one candidate or the other, 
Christ remains on the throne and he is ordering our steps. Whatever political party ends up uh, dominating in the House or the Senate, God is still on the throne and he is ordering our steps. He has provided a future and hope for his people so we can rest. It's important that we are involved, that we're aware, that we do what we can to try to facilitate an outcome that allows all of us to live in a more peaceful way, we and our neighbors. But whatever the outcome ultimately might be, whatever course the nation decides to take, I am so grateful that my hope and my peace does not rest on the outcome of the events of our day. The circumstances that swirl around us, COVID-19 does not change my relationship uh, with God. It doesn't change his character, his nature, the promises that he has made, my trust in him, my confidence in him. And so I can respond with peace and joy, which surpasses even my own understanding because I know him, because I know his word, because I know what um, he has promised for us, a future and a hope that goes beyond even the time that we find ourselves living in for now. So let's all take a deep breath. We don't know whether a cultural revolution is about to die or not. What we do know is there is a future, there is a hope, and when we put our hope and trust in him, we can have confidence that he gives us the capacity to experience uh, peace in the time of calamity that really is hard to explain to those who do not know him. It also gives us an opportunity to share what we know of him and to demonstrate that peace that we have in him. Well, I want to thank James Blinn for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night, and I hope you'll join us here tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.